A couple of weeks ago, Joe Biden went to Israel and Saudi Arabia. This was not a summer vacation. The president had goals. Did he achieve any? Did he set any back? I'm Cliff May. I'm planning to put these and other questions about what's going on in the Middle East to Michael Singh and Hussein Abdul Hussein. Michael is a managing director and Lane Swig Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute. From 2005 to 2008, he was Senior Director for Middle East Affairs in the White House at the National Security Council. He's also served as Special Assistant to Secretaries of State Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell, and at the U.S. Embassy in Israel. Hussein is a Research Fellow at FDD, formerly a Managing Editor of Beirut's Daily Star. He is reported from war zones in Lebanon and Iraq. He headed the Washington Bureau of the Kuwaiti Daily al Rai. He's been a visiting fellow with London's Chatham House, and he's published in numerous Arabic and English language publications, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. And just full disclosure here, we have a studio audience, uh, members of FDD's National Security Fellows Program. So if you hear them laugh or applaud, you'll know what you're hearing. Total full disclosure, I'm having a beer while this is going on. All right. Again, I'm Cliff May. I'm eager to hear Michael's thoughts and Hussein's thoughts. I hope you are too here today on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Okay, welcome, Michael. Welcome, Hussein. I'm going to start with something real simple. The Iran deal that President Obama concluded with the clerical regime in Iran and from which President Trump withdrew and which President Biden has been trying to revive and what his advisors had been calling a longer, stronger version. I think at this point it's at best a, a shorter and weaker version. In any case, Michael, why don't you start on this? Is the deal dead? Is it alive or is it a zombie? Well, the deal, I think, is essentially dead. Um, we might call it a zombie because, you know, it, it, in one sense, it still functions. Uh, all of the parties to the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal, um, besides the United States, are still parties to it. Um, different parts of the deal, uh, I would say a diminishing number of parts, are still being implemented uh, by the different uh, parties to the deal. But for the most part, um, Iran is not receiving the sanctions relief it was promised under the deal because the United States withdrew and reimposed sanctions under President Trump. And Iran, uh, for its part, is not keeping its nuclear commitments under the deal. Um, once the Trump administration withdrew in 2018, Iran started taking steps away from compliance with the deal that have now put it in a position um, where it is very far from the sort of original um, strictures that were imposed by the JCPOA and probably just weeks, if not days away from being able to construct a nuclear weapon or at least the fuel for a nuclear weapon uh, if it chose to do so. So if you think of the deal as essentially this bargain where Iran was to receive sanctions relief in exchange for certain nuclear restraint, that deal is no longer functional. 
Let me just be clear. The, the, the sanctions haven't been lifted, but they haven't been enforced, I think, under the Biden administration the way they were under the Trump administration. Is that true? And also, Iran is managing, for example, to sell more oil, especially now when we not when oil from Russia is still being sold and gas is still, but it's somewhat restricted. Right. So, so delving a bit into the details. Yes. I mean, look, the Trump administration reimposed the sanctions that were waived under the JCPOA, including the most important of those sanctions, which prohibited Iran essentially, or at least made it very difficult for Iran to sell oil and get the revenue for those oil sales. Um, the Biden administration has left those maximum pressure sanctions in place, but their priority certainly has not been enforcing those sanctions or adding to those sanctions. You know, sanctions regimes, as you know, Cliff, um, develop holes, develop gaps. And enforcing sanctions means not just going after malefactors. It means patching up the holes in the regime. And, and I don't think we have really seen that um, as a primary focus, certainly, of the Biden administration, because their focus has been trying to get uh, the JCPOA back, as it were. And in a sense, enforcing sanctions maximally um, they probably consider as sort of contrary to that goal of trying to get the JCPOA back. Um, Iran is selling oil uh, primarily, it seems, to China, but also to some other entities like the Taliban, for example. I think the real question is how much revenue are they getting for that oil? Um, you know, maybe it's 15 percent, maybe it's 20 percent of what they actually theoretically are earning. But it's a fraction uh, of the actual um, revenue, which might appear on paper. And so when we go back to the question, is the JCPOA alive? Is it dead? Is it a zombie? Um, it's certainly not functioning at the moment. And it looks like, Cliff, Iran um, is not going to come back to the JCPOA. Why? Well, yeah, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> Why? Well, because, look, um, Iran's nuclear program has advanced very far. And so from Iran's perspective, to get back to the JCPOA would require essentially sacrificing now uh, two or three years of progress that it has made on its nuclear program. So for Iran, the price tag for going back into the JCPOA looks very steep, much steeper than it did in 2018, much steeper than it did in 2019. Um, and if you look at the benefit that Iran would receive from Tehran's perspective, from the perspective of the regime, with a potential Republican administration coming into power in 2025, which would likely once again rescind the JCPOA, even if the Biden administration and Iran go back into it, the benefit ultimately is, is decreasing as well. Right, because they can't get a guarantee that the U.S. won't withdraw from it because it's not a treaty and because Republicans have specifically said, hey, we're not going to guarantee this and there's no way that it can be guaranteed. And even if it were a treaty, Cliff, there's, there are no guarantees other than strong bipartisan support for any particular policy. And that bipartisan support does not exist. I'm going to come, there's one thing I want to come back to, but first I want to get you into this, Hussein. Anything you disagree with that Mike has said? Or? No, I, I agree. And I, I just have to add that uh, I'm amazed at all these mechanisms in the UN Security Council GCPOA resolution. For example, snapbacks. When will they ever snap back? Yeah. And, uh, in other words, just so people understand, it's not, the idea was if Iran doesn't comply, there would be sanctions that have been lifted would snap back. There's many ways in which the, the Tehran has not complied over these past years, and there's been no snapback of uh, so, no. So, there have been no repercussions really. So that's that's the biggest proof that G JCPOA was not a, a good deal to start with. And this has, has sent all our allies into this game of trying to hedge all the time. Because they're not sure where we stand. I think we're not sure where we stand. 
And uh, we've heard Secretary Blinken say so many times that uh, talks can go on uh, forever, nuclear talks with Iran. We've heard uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan say the same thing. But n- there's no timetable. No one knows where, f- when forever is. And no one knows what happens after forever is, is done. So there's, there's a lot of confusion on the part of Washington. And this confusion goes all the way to our allies. And then they force our allies to, to hedge. And, and as we were saying the other day, uh, the UAE already said they're ready to send their ambassador back to Iran because they're not sure what we are trying to do. You know, one other theory that doesn't, con- doesn't contradict yours, but I want to bring in it. Ruel Markarek, who's FDD, senior fellow here, and Ray Takai, who's a senior fellow with the Council of Foreign Relations, they had an op-ed this week in the Wall Street Journal. And their conclusion was they believe that Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, and I'm kind of summarizing this op-ed, is very, very much in charge, always has been, still is, absolutely, and that he's not a moderate, that he's not a pragmatist, he's an Islamic revolutionary. They write, the entire purpose of Mr. Khamenei's demanding and perilous enterprise is to give the Islamic Republic autonomy in its choices. It's a reasonable conjecture that Khamenei, who has overseen the nuclear weapons program since it began, since it became serious in the 1990s, will decide to construct a bomb before the arrival of a new American administration. For too long, American presidents of both parties have hoped that diplomacy would obviate tough choices about Iran. Democratic Washington still wants to pretend there is time for another round of productive diplomacy. Republican Washington still wants to believe that the reimposition of tougher sanctions and the credible threat of force will somehow solve the problem. Do you agree with that, Mike? And um, but and what and, and what are your, your your thoughts after what were your thoughts after reading that? I'm sure you did. Well, I mean, I guess what I would say is I think we can be pretty sure that when Iran um, really sped up this program in earnest in the late 90s and early 2000s, that this was essentially a crash nuclear program. They were trying to build a nuclear weapon. They were caught out doing so and had to suspend that program or at least some elements of that program. And then we launched into this long and drawn out diplomatic back and forth, sanctions back and forth, you know, issuing of threats that has been going on ever since. But if you look at the program itself, you can say that it certainly appears that the steps Iran is taking um, are steps that are meant to enable it not just to produce a single nuclear weapon, but to produce several nuclear weapons um, and to perhaps then unveil a nuclear weapons capability at some point or to test a nuclear weapon. And I think you can also say that if you look as dispassionately as you can as a Western analyst at Iran's national security strategy. Iran is not a country which operates through normal diplomacy. It doesn't have allies in the region. It doesn't join you know, ad hoc blocks in the region. It has proxies. It has a puppet state of sorts uh, in Syria. It's not a country which has a strong conventional military for, for various reasons, sanctions, but also traditionally the, the regime in Iran has seen the conventional military as a potential threat. This is a country which pursues asymmetric power, which seeks to undermine the governments in the region by sort of working around governments and with these often sort of fifth column type proxy groups. For a state like that, having a nuclear deterrent makes sense as part of that kind of strategy. And so you see both the actions and you see a strategy in which that nuclear weapon would make a lot of sense for Iran. And I think you have to be very worried, uh, certainly, especially given how much progress they've made in the past few years. And I'll say this, that whether we accept or don't accept Ruel and Ray's argument 
um, because I think still policymakers will say, look, we have lots of tools. The United States is quite strong and we shouldn't accept uh, as um, essentially a fait accompli, an Iranian nuclear weapon. I think many of our partners in the region, and this gets to Hussein's point, have essentially now regarded Iran's sort of nuclear weapon status as something which, you know, is inevitable. Because not because they um, are okay with it, not because they have accepted it, but because they simply don't believe that anyone is going to take the necessary action to prevent it. Right, let's pick up on that, Hussein. Mike who talked about the uh, Iranian nuclear weapon as a deterrent. If you're the Israeli prime minister, one of several, uh, <laughs> that you probably don't see it as if we're a deterrent, that would be fine. You see it as an as the means to achieve what the regime uh, in Tehran has threatened um, since 1979, which is death to Israel, to wipe the Jewish state off the map. Very specifically, we can find the quotes. It, it, it's a it's a genocidal threat. So you think this threat is is serious and it's real? And we and and imagine you, Hussein Abdul Hussein, are the advisor to the Prime Minister of Israel. What do you tell him to do about this? Well, I absolutely agree that it's, it's in Iran is an ex- existential threat to Israel. Um, I think I'm, I'm happy to see that the uh, Israeli uh, government finally realized that there's no point of picking fights with Hezbollah alone. You have to go after Iran. And that imagining Iran as the octopus and these are the arms, there's no point of just cutting the arms. So I think Israel's strategy has changed over the past few years in a in a good way. Uh, how far can Israel go uh, on its own? How far will the U.S. support an Israeli action against uh, against Iran? These are open questions. What I know is that I'm, I'm almost certain that the Saudis would be very supportive of this, even if in public they'd say otherwise. But, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, um, which is a good segue in a way to the Abraham Accords. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> so President Biden went to Jerusalem and he went to Jeddah. Um, and in Jerusalem, he said things that for the most part, the Israelis were pleased to hear. I think there was one thing that they didn't acknowledge. They weren't so pleased to hear, but others in the region even less so. And what I'm speaking of is they both sort of agreed that Iran shouldn't have nuclear weapons. That would be intolerable. We can't accept that. It's not going to happen. And the prime minister, uh, Lapid, said, yes, and by the way, we need more than words. We're going to need, I think, something like the credible threat of force in order to make that happen. And Biden essentially said, yeah, but you know, I still believe in diplomacy, right? That was essentially his response. He didn't echo anything about force. And the next day, I think it was Friday, the UAE says, okay, just so you know, we're sending an ambassador to Tehran for the purpose of bridge building. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I interpret that as saying to Biden, because they didn't have to do what he was there, we don't find you credible. You're not going to do what's needed to be done. You're maybe not going to help the Israelis. If we're hedging our bets, what does that mean? Hedging our bets means uh, we're going to start to... uh, See what is necessary. What we have to give. What we have to give to Tehran for them to let us live. Mm. Well, I think Cliff, this goes back to this idea that you see states adapting to um, two big new realities, or maybe three big new realities in the region. Um, one is China's presence. We'll put that aside maybe for the moment. Um, but the second is Iran's uh, highly advanced nuclear capability, uh, and again, the prospect that Iran could acquire nuclear weapons, perhaps in the near term. Um, as well as sort of added to its sort of increasing um, brazenness, let's say, around the region. 
The second is this uh, worry that the U.S. is essentially disengaging from the region. And obviously, President Biden was there in part to try to uh, allay this worry. Um, But I think that worry persists, in part because it's driven not by just presidential choices. It's driven by geopolitical realities in the world. We have Russia uh, at war in Europe. We have China um, eyeing Taiwan in a much more serious way. And our partners look at that reality. And I think that, in a sense, is more powerful than whatever words we can offer them. And so I think you see different states reacting in different ways to these realities. Israel has, uh, as Hussein noted, decided that it needs to be much more forward-leaning in trying to deter Iran, but also hopes to recruit the United States to do the same. And, and I think that there was a gap there in, 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 in sort of our um, stated intentions, at least. And then I think you see the UAE, for example, shifting its own strategy. The UAE has talked about wanting to be essentially the Singapore of the region, where it has good relations with everyone and can be a sort of honest broker, can be a trading hub and so forth, um, rather than being caught uh, in the middle of the region's conflicts, which, of course, the UAE has been very involved in the region's conflicts uh, in, in past years. So this marks a bit of a departure. Um, Saudi Arabia you know, has a different approach still. And so you see different partners in the region responding to the new realities in the region. And one of those, unfortunately, is that all of our diplomacy sanctions and threats have not stopped Iran so far from getting to the brink of having a nuclear weapon. So this raises this question. Early in the Biden administration, um, they didn't even want to use the words Abraham Accords. They called it normalization. <laughs> they finally got used to it and they began to say, and thought, well, you know what, maybe we should uh, be expanding the Abraham Accords. That would be a big achievement. I mean, imagine if we get the Saudis into it, that would make a huge load of difference. But it, given the, the perceptions you just referred to of the U.S., pivoting away from the Middle East, of the U.S. not being reliable, of the U.S. not saying it, saying that it's unacceptable for the Islamic Republic of Iran to have nuclear weapons, but meaning, yeah, well, we'll have to accept it. Does that, does that mean the Abraham Accords are stalled? Are they a zombie? The Abraham Accords are definitely not a zombie. And in fact, I think you could say, Cliff, that these same threats or geopolitical realities we're talking about, the the sort of specter of an Iranian nuclear weapon, but also the worry about the reliability of the United States. These are actually factors which help to bring the Abraham Accords together, to propel the Abraham Accords forward. Because if you look at Israel, the UAE, and, and Bahrain, and you could add in there Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, and so forth, the Morocco, sort of I mean, Morocco, to, yeah. uh, the conservative states of the region, essentially, they share threat perceptions in common. They all worry about Iran. They all worry about political Islam. Uh, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, also jihadist groups and so forth. And, you know, it had been in the past that to address those threats, you had this sort of very U.S.-centric security order in the region. And I think there is a worry that that order uh, is passing away, essentially. And if you're the Saudis, if you're the Emiratis, and you look, well, who can we partner with um, to address these threats? Who's who's quite competent and reliable out there? Well, The alternatives are not, despite uh, some of the commentary in the media, Russia and China. Neither of these are reliable allies. China has no allies in the world. Russia essentially has none either. They have puppet states like Belarus. Um, But these are not countries you turn to uh, for help with your security threats. There may be countries you trade with, buy things from, and so forth. Um, And ironically enough, Israel, in a way, is... In, in some sense, taking part of the burden off of the United States is taking part of the role played by the United States in the past, helping these partners in the region with things like missile defense, uh, with things like intelligence and so forth. Um, and from the United States perspective, even though it is in part precipitated 
by concerns about our reliability, it's actually something that's quite good and something that we can build upon. And I think the Biden administration, to its credit, has recognized that. You can say, well, they were a bit late to recognize it. And that, I think, has mostly to do with politics, this idea that whatever the last guy did, I reject. Um, um, but now they think I think they have seen that is this is a strategic boon. And not only that, that actually building on it, especially accomplishing Saudi-Israeli normalization, which is really the big prize, both economically and from a security standpoint for the Middle East, um, would be a massive political achievement, too, that would actually have strong bipartisan support in the United States. And I think that's why President Biden on his trip, leaned so heavily into the normalization theme. So here's my only quibble with you on this one. You come back in on this too, we're saying. My quibble is this, that yes, they when you're talking about an alliance for common defense from a, an, an, uh, an adversary who is an existential threat, not just to Israel, but actually more imminently to the Saudis and to the Emiratis and to the Bahrainis, um, you would like to have America behind Israel as the big brother. Right. You want to see America there as part of that. And the other message I thought that was sent to Biden is, again, when he was in the region, both the UAE and the Saudis saying, by the way, there's no defense alliance with Israel that we're talking about here. Now, people talk about this as a Middle Eastern NATO. That's a great exaggeration. But it's really information sharing about air defenses so that if missiles are coming from Iran to hit a Saudi oil facility, which has happened, or coming from Yemen to hit the Saudis or hit the UAE, intelligence sharing satellites with the Israelis, that would all be shared. And they specifically said, we're not doing that. My guess is they are doing that, and they will do that, but they're not going to announce or formalize that. And they're, and part of that, the reason is because they don't see, they, are, they don't believe the U.S. is even totally behind Israel as they sort of, again, not the... Uh, not the senior director of the alliance, but as the uh, as the advisor, the godfather, if you will. You know, I, I guess I would say, let's not overstate this narrative of American disengagement from the region. I, I think that again, our partners have questions about will we be for the be there for them um, when things go bad. Um, but that is separate from the question of are we leaving the region? And what one of the things which is. I think, um, important to the Abraham Accords and to security cooperation in the region is that actually CENTCOM is there um, as the sort of organizing body uh, to, to a great extent. The, the other development under the Trump administration, besides the Abraham Accords, which is actually essential to all of this, was moving Israel from European command to central command. Uh, and in fact, the, the two, two things sort of mutually supported one another because that was possible only because of the warming of relations between these conservative Arab states and Israel so that they could all sit in the same room, talk about military things and so forth. Um, the U.S. is still there. And I think that an ideal American strategy in the region would be one where we sort of provide the high level support, things, capabilities that only we have. Um, and we increasingly build up the capabilities uh, of our partners to do the things below that threshold. That, I think, is what we should be aiming for. Whether we'll accomplish that uh, or whether we will sort of be seen as so unreliable that even that falls apart, I think, is a question now for the future. And Zane, picking up on this, and you, you tell me, I, the other thing that, I, that probably needs to be mentioned is the, the country of the Middle East saw the capitulation in Afghanistan uh, a year ago, August. 
30th, I, I think was the beginning of that. They saw us abandon the Afghanistan after 20 years, and they saw it done in a, a chaotic, in my mind, a, a dishonorable way. Um, did that does that play play heavily in terms of their thinking? Does that weigh on them as they consider their relationship with the U.S. or with Israel or in general? It absolutely does, and I think one of the major reasons that the Saudis and the Emiratis are not betting on this administration is that they don't think that this administration know what they're doing. And what, even when you say the question of competence as well as of course idea, right of policy. Yes. And, and, and when you say, even if you're President Biden and you're saying diplomacy, diplomacy is usually you speak softly and you carry a big stick. Where's the big stick? So they understand that, you know, when we're saying diplomacy, we, we, mean, we mean words. And, and even though they observe the behavior of this administration in other regions. So, for example, the war on Ukraine, we were behind the Europeans. The Europeans were ahead of us. They went after Putin. They, they, they imposed some sanctions before this administration did. So I think for some reason, that slogan that President, former President Obama came up with, don't do stupid stuff, I think it, it, it's now translated into don't do anything. Just sit back with an eye on what the guys over here in Washington would say, what, what the uh, uh, progressive Democrats would say. So I think the whole trip to Saudi Arabia, the, 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 the idea was not how to uh, fix things with the Saudis, but how to keep an eye on the Democrats, on Senator Sanders. On, on these guys. And, and that's one of the huge issues that, that the allies understand as being one of the incompetent, you know, uh, behavior that, that, that Biden administration shows. Mike, I can see you want yeah, to No, I, I think, no, I don't, I don't yeah. quibble with that at all. I, I agree with Hussein. I, I think that we, we, again, have to draw a distinction here. I don't think the idea of the U.S. withdrawing from Afghanistan is something that's shocking to partners anywhere. You know, these are countries which have you know, um, a sort of uh, isolated Assad in Syria, engaged with Assad. They've been involved in Yemen, then withdrew from Yemen. So they understand that policies change um, and that no sort of military engagement is going to be permanent. I think what surprised them was the way that it was done, this sort of, you know, the, the chaos that uh, attended the withdrawal from Afghanistan, as Hussein said. But also, I think it's this idea that American decision-making is unpredictable, that American policy is so changeable at the moment, which is something that actually transcends administrations. That, I think, more than anything else, has undermined our credibility in this region and, frankly, other regions as well. Um, We've we've mentioned Russia kind of tangentially. I want to bring it in a a little more specific way with the following. I would argue, I don't think I would more than argue, I said on February 4th, um, Russia and China formalized a new relationship. Uh, they signed a very long document that their relationship is as, un- as unlimited, essentially. I would, I would argue, and I'm hardly alone in this. I'm not unique in this or innovative. Mike uh, Matt Pottinger and Neil Ferguson and others that this is the start of a, a new Cold War. Except in, in this Cold War, instead of Russia being the senior partner and China being the junior partner, it's the other way around. But the other thing that's going on is that Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, is getting closer and closer to Russia in many, many ways. We've heard about drones being sent from Russia, from Iran to Russia to be used in order to wage an imperialist war against Ukraine. We've heard about Russian credit cards. We've heard of, there's a whole list of things we've heard of the Russian, of Putin getting more and more buddy buddy. Um, with uh, the, the ruling mullahs of Tehran. It's a, it's kind of, they're an odd couple if you think about it, but 
You agree, Michael? That's what's going on. I, I I don't really agree that that's what's going on in this in this sense only. Look, I obviously all the things you described, Cliff, are very concerning. But I call this the axis of self interest. Right? These are not allies. If you look at NATO, we mentioned NATO before. NATO is really based not just on shared military platforms and things like that. It's based on political trust. How can we have this mutual defense commitment? It's because of political trust. We have a level of sort of shared values. We have a level of trust in our NATO partners that they're not going to drag us into uh, wars that don't align with our interests and our values. And when NATO partners sort of um, stray a bit from that area of trust, as, say, Turkey has done, as Hungary has done to some extent, um, there is a lot of uh, uneasiness uh, amongst the other NATO partners. There is no political trust between Russia, China, and Iran. They don't share values. Um, what they share is, again, self-interest and a desire to see the United States taken down a peg. Yeah. But that is very different from having that level of trust. And so look at, for example, the Russia-Iran drone story. Um, this idea that Russia is, is trying to buy drones uh, for, for export to, um, from Iran uh, in order to prosecute its war in Ukraine. Um, Frankly, I'll believe it when I see it. I'm not sure the Iranians actually have this capability to export drones in any numbers um, uh, and to and to field them in a in a war of the type of Ukraine, uh, the one in Ukraine. But what does it say about the Russia-China relationship? Because surely the most logical place for Russia to turn to for drones, if in fact they have this unlimited relationship, uh, would be China. Um, but in fact, what we see is that while China has been very willing to support Russia rhetorically uh, in the Ukraine war and very willing to support Russia in ways that uh, suit its self-interest. So, for example, by criticizing NATO and saying, well, this war is really NATO's fault, uh, which is something that appeals, again, to China's worldview. When it comes to actually taking risks, risks of U.S. sanctions, for example, I think we've seen much less support from China for Russia. And that's why Putin has to travel to Tehran, you know, stand uncomfortably waiting for, for President Erdogan of Turkey to show up for a meeting and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, I'm going to digress for just one second here. And the reason is... You, because I'm not sure the answer to this. I'm curious to know your thoughts. If Putin were to prevail in Ukraine and he were to say, okay, I can see that and it, that, that, that NATO is not so strong. They need my oil and gas more than they're not saying to me I can't use it. They're saying to me, please keep it going through Nord Stream 1, even though we've closed down for now Nord Stream 2. This is not terribly serious. And Putin thinks, what else, should I, what else would I like to do soon? It seems to me what he'd like to do soon would be to hit one of the Baltic countries, because they're small, and he could, if, if his military is in good shape for it, he could dominate very quickly. He could overcome NATO forces there pretty pretty quickly, I, I'm afraid one has to say. Um, and probably that would be Lithuania, because that would give him a land bridge to Kaliningrad, which is part of the Soviet, part of Russia, was part of the Soviet Union, was part of Prussia before that, part of, part of Russia that is not geographically contiguous with Russia, and Lithuania has annoyed him by saying we're not letting everything come through from from Kaliningrad to uh, to Russia. Would NATO stay together? I don't see Turkey fighting for Lithuania, to be honest with you. And I wonder about, you know, I'm not sure Germany can fight for anybody mm. at this point. Um, uh, if, if it were Putin's desire to bring down NATO, wouldn't an attack on Lithuania after Ukraine be a good way to do that? Well, I mean, so so look, I mean, you've you've layered many hypotheticals on top of one another. We're assuming here that Putin has prevailed in Ukraine, which right now looks Hopefully like a bit of a pipe dream uh, for for the Russians. 
Um, and we could also ask, what does prevail mean in, in Ukraine for, for Russia at this stage? But look, I, I would say, I, I'm not sure about the premise of the question. I'm not sure, A, that what we have seen from Russian forces in Ukraine would lead us to believe that Russia would have an easy time in Lithuania, despite Lithuania's small size, or despite the small size of any of the Baltic states. Um, I'm not sure, frankly, that Putin would be willing to do it. Um, I think that, frankly, the NATO membership of the Baltic states provides a good deal of deterrence uh, against Russia, um, even contemplating such a step. And I would say, actually, after the Ukraine war, look at the way that actually, yes, the U.S. and Europe, um, probably to an extent that Putin never imagined they would, actually work together to supply Ukraine with military equipment, to support Ukraine, to try to take at least um, halting steps towards weaning themselves off of Russian energy. Now, we can criticize each one of these steps as maybe insufficient, as maybe too slow, um, and so forth. But the fact they're happening at all probably surprises the Russians, I would say. Now, in the Baltics, um, all these questions about should we or should we not supply this system and so forth, in a sense, are swept away because we have a treaty commitment uh, in the Baltics, not just to... um, you know, send this or that system, but to actually help defend our NATO partners, to be involved in that military conflict. And and I think that provides a good level of deterrence. You know, we've we've had this debate now uh, for the last several months about, you know, is is did NATO expansion somehow provoke Putin? And, And I think the answer is no. In fact, NATO expansion is deterring Putin. And what we're seeing is Russian imperial ambition playing out in places where NATO is not present. I totally, I, I totally agree with that, though it doesn't mean I don't worry about these other things. <laughs> um, we say, uh, you, you're welcome to weigh in on any of that, or I can go into other things I want to ask you. Let's go back to the region. So, then. <laughs> I'll go back to the region. Let's start with this. The Arab-Israeli conflict ain't what it used to be. Um, but the Palestinian-Israeli conflict remains no closer to resolution. That's, that's for sure. And, you know, in Gaza, Hamas still proclaims that its goal is Israel's extinction, the same thing that the Islamic Republic of Iran proclaims. In fact, they're, they're, Hamas and Tehran are closer together than ever before, um, for sure. And on the, meanwhile, in the West Bank, you have um, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. He has less power and less popularity than ever before. He's, what, 87 years old. Uh, as we sometimes say, he was elected to a four-year term, and he's in the 17th year of that four-year term at this point. So, I mean, I guess I'll give the question this way. Is the two-state a solution? Is it alive, dead, or is it too a zombie? Well, I think at least the Palestinian state is dead for now. Because what is the, the Palestinian, state, Palestinian state? Yeah, because even if you have, uh, even if Israel goes to the Palestinians and, and say, I'll grant you whatever you want, there's no one to talk to. And Mahmoud Abbas is not only old, his authority is shrinking. Uh, he's he's lost so far. He's lost the uh, north of the West Bank, Janine and Nablus. These are these have become Hamas and Jihad. Uh, and this is Jihad. not well understood that the north of the West Bank is no longer ser- seriously governed by the Palestinian Authority. It's governed, as you say, by Hamas, by Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Palestinian Islamic Jihad is directly connected to Tehran. Hamas increasingly so. I mean, this and that's where nineteen uh, Israelis were killed by terrorists from that area. The Israelis went in to try to get them out. A journalist from Al Jazeera was killed. And now, of course, that's being said, well, the Israelis killed her on purpose, and we won't give the bullet, but yada, yada, yada. Um, but this is, a, this is quite a bad development. If, if, the, if the West, I mean, who knows what it means if the West Bank gets taken over 
by Hamas. I don't think that if anything's going to stop it, it would be the Israelis stopping Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad from taking over the West Bank, right? It's not that, that'll be, that'll Abbas's be, forces. That'll be, that'll be too costly. And then after you clear them out, who, who do you give it over to? And, and this is not only in the north, even in the south of the West Bank. Uh, I think Hebron is just out of question. They, uh, uh, they have the, all the clans who are technically fighting a civil war. So if you live there on the Palestinian side, it's really dangerous to be out on the street any time of the day. So Abbas's authority is shrinking. The, his economy is, is uh, in tatters. Uh, the Palestinian authority is indebted to the Palestinian banks by $2.5 billion dollars. And, and that's, that's people deposits. So they're probably following the, the Lebanese example and, you know, and, and, and collapse soon. So there are so many things that are stacked against a Palestinian state. And that's before you, you go and talk to the Israelis. So even if you, even if the Israelis say, okay, you know, look, we like you today. You're, you're nice to us. We'll give you whatever you want. There's no one to talk to. There's no one to give whatever you want to give to them. So, and, and that's, that's, I think that's, that's been the thing that's worrying. The Israelis and, and many other leaders in the region. Do you have quibbles with that, Michael? Or? I, I think the, the one thing which um, Hussein points to in, in part of his answer is that, look, one of the fundamental questions that we've debated here in Washington about the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, such as it is, has always been, um, should we take a top-down or bottom-up approach to that process? You know, is the right approach to get leaders in the room and negotiate the final status accord, or is the right approach to try to improve security, improve economic conditions in the Palestinian territories, um, so that you know perhaps one day those you know final status negotiations uh, face a more auspicious future? And I think that look, at least during the George W. Bush administration, which is fading into historical memory now, um, but I remember it quite vividly. Um, we came to the conclusion ultimately that actually both were necessary, that both had to operate in parallel. Um, I worry now less about sort of what is the right approach to top-down negotiations, which seems to always be um, uh, where we take these conversations when we talk about two state, one state, this and that. I, I think we, we should be focusing on how do we reinvigorate the bottom-up element of these negotiations. So if, in fact, security in the Northern West Bank is deteriorating, what can we do about that? Um, what can we do to restore some legitimacy to governance uh, in these Palestinian territories? What can we do to help bolster economic cooperation between the Israelis and Palestinians? Um, and of course, there are plenty of people who um, support things like BDS, which push against that, that very goal. And so I worry that we've gotten sort of too wrapped up into the question of whether the top-down negotiations, whether the final status negotiations, and have left aside the bottom-up piece, which is just as important uh, and arguably is absolutely necessary for ultimately answering that other question. But it, I would say, Hussein, it's very difficult to, to do when you consider that after all these years and all the money that's been spent on, on the Palestinian Authority, you don't have regular elections, you don't have elections, you don't have basic freedoms, you don't have, and this is something I know you've looked at a lot, uh, you don't have any clear idea of who succeeds, who comes after Mahmoud Abbas when he either dies or retires. It, we don't, I mean, you, you've thought about this a lot. In other words, how do we obviously haven't had much success in affecting the, the polity of the West Bank and none in terms of Hamas in Gaza, which we may want to return to over all these years. Can we do it now? I think there were short periods of time, especially when Salam Fayyad was the prime minister, and he was doing a good job, and he was building from the bottom up. 
But the, the problem. But he was pushed out, and he never had a, real, a large constituency. Exactly, exactly. But even even when you had someone like Arafat, and even when Arafat gave his word that okay, you know, if you withdraw from certain area, we'll do this, this, and that, he never delivered. Did did he did he was he unable to deliver, or did he not want to deliver? That's the question. But in either case, he did not deliver, so the Israelis couldn't really also deliver on their part. So I think this has been something that's really complicated. I don't think any one of us over the past 20 years have come up with any you know, clear answers to this. Another question for you, Hussein. It appears to me, tell me it appears to you, that Hamas and, and Hezbollah, which is in Lebanon with about 150,000 missiles pointed in Israel, that Hamas and Hezbollah are becoming closer friends and, and coordinating their efforts in a way that I don't think they had in the past. Is it, does that appear that way to you as well? I think yes, after they had a fallout because of the Syrian revolution and they took the side of the Assad opponents, they fought against Assad and Hezbollah. Hamas, Hezbollah absolutely took the side of Iran and, and Hamas, Hamas was not, Hamas was not there. Right, right. But since then, they've, they've, been, they've become good friends and they're, they're rebuilding ties between the two. And I think at this point, especially because Hamas doesn't really have, I mean, they have, they have Qatar, but Qatar is, is far away. So I think uh, Hezbollah is the closest. And we had uh, Nasrallah, Hezbollah chief, go on TV the other day and, and just say that uh, during the Gaza war, we had a, a, a joint room of operations that was sponsored by the RGC, the Iranian RGC. And, and he claimed that he had helped Hamas uh, foil the Israeli trick of, of hitting the uh, Gaza metro, what they call the, the, the Gaza, the, the tunnels under, under Gaza. So I, I don't think they're even trying to hide it at this point. And the Israelis obviously think that another war, certainly with, with Hamas, is possible. Uh, one of the things that they've done recently, which is, I thought was interesting, is, is from the Jerusalem Post, the idea of brief reporters about future military targets in Gaza. Why would they say, well, here's what we're going to hit in Gaza? Because they want to point out to the press now, look, this weapons warehouse is right next to a hospital. This one is by a mosque. Uh, let me show you this one we're probably going to have to hit. It's near a school. And here's one next to an ambulance center. And here's a munition production facility in a building that's also residential. And they're saying, you should know this now because when you hit us, they're going to say, oh, my God, look what they're doing. They're trying to kill innocent people in hospitals, mosques, schools, and residences. And the Israelis are saying, here's why. Why don't you report on this now? Which, if you're a reporter in Gaza, you will not be eager to do. And they should probably do the same for Lebanon, except that they wouldn't want to show their hands on, you know, that they know the Lebanese targets. But we know that Hezbollah is, for such a long time, just had military targets right next to uh, just civilian target, not targets, just civilian spots. So I think they, they probably would want to do that in the case of Lebanon, too. You wanted to comment on any of that? No, I think that's absolutely right. I think it's, I think it's smart for uh, the Israelis to do this. Um, and I think we would hope that this would help generate some pressure internationally on Hamas, um, especially given the outcry internationally when uh, these conflicts erupt uh, and the devastation that that entails. But unfortunately, we, we typically do not see that pressure on Hamas. We, we see, in fact, the inter international community, such as it is, essentially forgetting about this issue, except when there's a conflict. I think that's a big mistake. Right. Uh, right. And uh, by the way, when we're talking about Lebanon, Nasrallah, who's the head of Hezbollah, he, he's also um, threatening Israel, particularly over the gas. There, there's, there's underwater gas 
near the in the waters off Lebanon and Israel. Israel, the Karish, I think it's called the oil field. The Israelis want to begin pumping and he's saying, well, if we don't get our share, we're going to start a war with you. He's threatening to do that. Um, my guess, I don't know. Is is he does he mean it? Is he going to start a new war, or does he want to figure the Israelis will will give something? The Americans will push him to do so, and then I'll take credit and say, "See, I got us all this wealth uh, for Lebanon because I threatened the Israelis and they backed down." This is how good I am. What do you think? Well, I think the the credit theory might be the uh, accurate one because um, he he knows that he knows that the government the, he, the line that he's he's fighting for is not the Lebanese government line, even though the Lebanese government are people who are supported by by Hezbollah and Nasrallah. But anyway, he said, come September, if the Israelis start taking gas out of the sea and we don't get a share, then, you know, we don't mind going to war. I, I think, like you said, he's probably trying to take credit. At this point, as we speak, there's no bread in Lebanon. People are queuing up in very long lines. It's really a failing state at this point economically, which is really a sad thing because Beirut was the Paris of the Middle East for a long time. And it it doesn't make sense to tell people who are trying to find bread, oh, we can hit any target inside Israel. I mean, how how does that help the Lebanese at least? I think think people in Lebanon also understand that if, if, if there's a war, it's not a war between this time, certainly, maybe not before, but certainly it's not a war between Hezbollah and Israel. It ends up as a war between Lebanon and Israel because the Israelis will not be able to say, oh, we'll just stay south of the Latani River because there are missiles coming from all the way north, certainly around Beirut. And after 2006, the Lebanese get so much money, got so much money from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf to help rebuild. I don't think the Saudis will, will come to the rescue this time. All right, let's talk about Syria, because the other place where Israel is actively involved in what they call the war between the wars or a shadow war is in Syria. Almost almost every day, the Israelis are hitting targets in Syria. And what are they hitting? They're hitting weapons systems from Iran and, and forward operating bases that the Iranians are trying to set up because they want another front against Israel, one in Syria, as well as one in Lebanon as well as one in Gaza, if they could, in the, in, the, in the West Bank as well. They're trying to essentially surround it. Um, and, uh, and of course, this is interesting too. Russia has helped prop up the Bashar uh, dictatorship and dynasty, uh, so as, as Iran has. It's not entirely clear to me if, if in this Russia and Iran are, as we were discussing earlier, allies, or if they're somewhat competitors, or if Russia just has its interests. And they're separate from Iran's and they're agnostic, if you will, as far as what the, the Iranians manage to do, what the Israelis stop them from doing. How do you, you know Syria? How do you analyze Syria? Well, I, I think I think you've got it right, Cliff, in the sense that um, you have obviously lots of different players inside Syria who have sometimes overlapping, but certainly not perfectly overlapping interests. Assad's interests are not Russia's interests, are not Iran's interests, and yet uh, and to ex- some extent, they all compete with one another, and yet they all also cooperate uh, in other ways, especially against uh, other external adversaries like Israel, for example. And yet, you know, what, what has always been the case um, uh, since the Russians intervened in Syria was that there was a, sort of this bargain between the Russians and the Israelis, um, whereby Israel could target Iranian forces in Syria without Russian interference, as long as the Israelis refrained from targeting Assad's forces, targeting Syrians, essentially. Because as you said, for for Russia, propping up the Assad regime um, was essential to their objectives in Syria. 
And their objectives, you should say, are? There are well, Russia's, you could, we could argue about this. What are Russia's objectives in Syria? I think propping up the Assad regime was actually an objective in itself because this was a client state, um, even back in Soviet times, for the Russians, and arguably one of the last sort of bastions of real Russian influence in the Middle East. Um, and perhaps that's grown a bit, actually, since then, in part because of Russia's um, intervention in Syria and its willingness to use force there, even in a, in a brutal and cynical way. Um, but also, I think you could say, yes, um, Russia has gained um, perhaps access to port facilities the Russia on the Mediterranean. Um, Russia has um, – uh, we used to say that Russia had successfully demonstrated its military systems, and maybe that gave them military experience as well as um, perhaps customers for those systems. I think the Ukraine war has uh, has pushed in the opposite direction now. Um, but I think you can also say, uh, going back to what is the overarching objective, that sort of defeating American uh, objectives, defeating American aims in the Middle East is something that's important for the Iranians, for the Russians, and, and for others. Um, so that had been the bargain between the Russians and the Israelis. And I think one big question now, and it's a question we don't really know the answer to at this stage, is will that bargain hold um, in light of new geopolitical realities, in light of the Ukraine war, especially, where Israel, I, I think, has tried hard to sort of toe a very careful line uh, on, on the Ukraine war. But with Yair Lapid coming in as prime minister, he's been actually much more critical than his predecessor, Naftali Bennett, of the Russians in Ukraine. Um, uh, with Israel cooperating with the United States uh, on many fronts, um, and not just, not just this one, um, will that Russian-Israeli bargain hold, or will we see more incidents of Russia actively trying to interfere with Israeli operations against Iran in Syria, which could pose significant problems for Israel in terms of preventing the establishment of that sort of Golan front uh, by the Iranians in Syria? Uh, well, yeah, I agree. I mean, to Mike's point, just uh, the, they, the Iran and Russia happen to shoot in the same direction. I don't think they're necessarily allies. And I think the, the weakest link here is Bashar Assad. And I hear voices arguing that let's peel him away from uh, from the Iranians. I think even if he wanted to, he can't beat them. And we know that the Iranians never gave him back all the territory that they won back from his opponents, uh, which is mainly Damascus, south of Damascus, all the way south to the Golan Heights. Uh, one of the reasons that I think the Iranians are trying to build an infrastructure, military infrastructure to threaten Israel from there is that if, if, they, if they manage to start lobbing missiles on Israel, there's no one to hold accountable. So in Lebanon, you can hold all of Lebanon accountable. But in this case, in Syria, who do you strike back? You strike Assad you know, or, or the Russians? or so, that, so because Syria doesn't have any central power or authority at this point, it really plays well for the Iranians if they have a military infrastructure over there. And I think that Israelis have been doing a, a good job. Just they started the war before the Iranians announced that, that they've, they've started their war. So now they're trying to prevent and preempt the Iranians from, from building the infrastructure needed to, to hit Israel. Do you have a sense, is Israel succeeding in stopping the Iranians from creating the infrastructure for another front there? Or are they... Or, or, or? Or are, they, are the Iranians managing to, to establish what they want to establish? I think judging at least by the list of names of, of the Iranian celebrities that were lost in the, in the Golan Heights, including the terrorist Samir Kantar, who was, you know, who was the reason behind the 2006 war, and then the son of Maghnia. I think it's a long list of RGC generals. Judging by the list, I think the Israelis are, are you know, successful to a, to a great extent on this. Uh, quickly touch on two more countries before we close out our conversation. One is Jordan. I think it's a, it's kind of a good thing. Um, Yair Lapid, the 
caretaker prime minister, as it were, uh, met with King Abdullah. Um, this is an important relationship, though. It's, it is a troubled relationship. Uh, I mean, people don't necessarily realize, the, I think the king does, the extent to which Jordan relies on Israel for security assistance, for water, for, for, for fuels, for energy, all of that. And yet he's been very, he's taken a very tough line rhetorically towards Israel, which I, I think I'm right in saying is, is fairly annoying for the Israelis. And at the same time, the Israelis are seeing that to a great extent, I think I'm right, their partners in the Abraham Accords are, are warmer towards them than Jordan is in public or the, certainly the Jordanian population, even though they've been at peace for a very long time. For sure. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't characterize myself as a Jordan expert, Cliff, but I, but I think one thing we can say is that both the Israelis and the United States, I mean, look at the amount that we invest uh, in the security and stability of uh, the government in Jordan, um, regard Jordanian stability, stability in Jordan, as just absolutely essential to stability in the wider Middle East because um, Jordan is obviously uh, a government which is very friendly to the United States, works very well with us, but also Jordan sits in a very sort of strategic geographic spot between Israel and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and so forth. It's a relationship, uh, the Jordanian-Israeli relationship, which became strained under Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, and there were you know, concerns, uh, certainly from Jordan, about uh, the steps that, uh, that Israel was taking to, to somehow undermine you know, what Jordan saw as its traditional role in, in places like Jerusalem and so forth. And I think that under Prime Minister Bennett, under Prime Minister Lapid now, um, I, I think we see that improving. I mean, it's not to say it's ideal right now. It's not to say that there are no bumps or, or rough edges, but I think we do see it improving. Um, you know, this is, I, I think this is one area where you'll always find strong agreement between the U.S. and Israel is that Jordanian stability is, is absolutely essential. Um, I think you'll always see a readiness in Washington to do what we can to, to help uh, the king and to help Jordan. That's why, you know, these uh, aid packages move through Congress uh, really without uh, any particular trouble. I mean, I think that's all a good thing because this, the stability of Jordan is key to the stability of the Middle East. Jordanian diplomats tend to be a very uh, talented, skillful bunch, I would say, in my experience. What do you want to add to this, Hussein? Well, I'll add that I think the king is scared. If he loses Mahmoud Abbas and Hamas takes over the West Bank, he's he's in a, yeah, he's in trouble. And then, then there's another thing. that We have the Iranians breathing down his neck. From the north, you have drugs crossing from Syria, crossing all the way through Jordan, all the way to Saudi Arabia. And and he, the king has lost at least two dozen border guards trying to fight this uh, drug trade. So it's it's not easy being, I mean, like Mike said, they sit on a strategic uh, uh, crossroads, but it's not easy really sitting there because everyone is trying to get stuff going through your spot. So, uh, but he's, I mean, so far he's, he's been doing a, a great job, at least in terms of security and curtailing these activities. Last country I'm going to ask you to give a few uh, words about is Morocco. And it's kind of an, it, it strikes me as kind of optimistic, actually, because Morocco and Israel are developing close and warm relations. And part of the reason for that is, and people, a lot of people don't know this, is that the one of the largest communities in Israel are Moroccan Jews. Uh, and, the, and Moroccan Jews go back to Roman times. The seven, I mean, that's 70, the, the common era. Uh, a lot of Moroccan, the other population of Moroccan Jews came from uh, Spain and Portugal after the expulsion in 1492. Um, it was not heaven for the Jews in Morocco, but it wasn't as bad as, say, if you're an Iraqi Jew, if you, if you left uh, Baghdad 
um, you left with uh, with barely the shirt on your back when you were expelled from Baghdad, where they were, where in 1945 between a third and a quarter of the population was Jewish. If you were expelled from Libya, you took nothing with you. Those who left Cairo, those who left Alexandria, those who left Yemen. So you have Mor- so you have this large Moroccan Jewish community in Israel, and they're kind of happy to be able to go back, and because they have kind of they're they're more nostalgic, let's at least say, than other other Middle Eastern Jewish communities in Israel. Um, and the Moroccan government seems to be rather welcoming of that. It's an, inter- it's an interesting e- example. It's di- and it's different from the other Abraham Accords. Last point. Why? Because there are almost no, there are some, but there are almost no Jews in Israel whose ancestors lived in UAE or Bahrain or Saudi. And again, there were Jews in Saudi Arabia at one point, but they did, the communities did not survive. Yemen, yes, they survived until fairly recently. Um, it seems to me an interesting relationship developing between Morocco and Israel, I guess, is my major point. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and obviously, it's a relationship which has, it's not entirely new. It's It's been one of the warmer relationships that Israel has had in the region under for some the, time, uh, uh, yeah, under the table. And, and I think that, um, Cliff, it's also representative of uh, maybe a wider phenomenon now in the region, North Africa, Iraq, other places like this, that not in all quarters, but in some quarters, I think, um, you know, leaders in these countries are starting to um, understand or see or perceive that um, in, when when their Jewish communities uh, left or were pushed out, um, whatever the case may be, um, they lost something. They lost something that was important to their countries. They lost an important part of their culture and of their history, as you were suggesting. Um, and it's nice to see. It's actually um, it's actually uh, incredibly um, gratifying to see. That one thing that's happening now, in part as a result of the Abraham Accords, uh, in part is sim- in part simply due to the turning wheels of history, that some of those bridges are being rebuilt. And I hope that more are rebuilt. I hope that, for example, uh, Iraq can drop its uh, attitudes towards uh, normalization with Israel, and you might have a better relationship there. Because there's another country where you had a thriving Jewish community for a very long time. Thanks, Last points on this or anything else you want to say? No, no, I, I'll just add that in the case of Morocco, we have to keep in mind that Morocco has always been closer to the Western camp, to the United States, as opposed to their rivals, Algeria, which have been in the Soviet Union camp. And these two rivals, they're always trying to, they support the, they sponsor the opposition on the other side. So for the, the, the Moroccans have been, have been dealing with the Western Sahara. And Algerians have been supporting the separatists over there. So now Algeria is making making common cause with with the uh, Hamas, with Iran, and it's only natural that the Moroccans will go to the other side. And then that's only the the, the calculation of the, their own region, let alone you know the whole the, the bigger picture. Hussein, Mike, uh, thank you very much. I found this a really interesting, entertaining, edifying conversation. Our studio audience, let's give a good round of applause. <laughs> And thanks to all of you who are at home in your garden or in your car applauding as well. Thanks for listening today to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.